Our reading this morning is coming from the book of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And all of you can thank God that we're not doing this whole chapter one in one sermon. I was thinking this week about how from the earliest years of life, we learn by asking questions. You ever thought about that? So, so the first time a, a toddler says, why, daddy? We, we think it's what? Cute. Oh my goodness, they ask a why question. And uh, we're amazed by their power of inquiry and we're happy to reply. But then, of course, when, when they say for the 10th time, 20th, why, daddy? You know what's going on? Other words start coming to the parent's mind, right? Unspoken words with a certain number of letters. And we say things like, because I said so. So you could argue our questions on the whole start out innocent enough. We ask things like, Daddy, where did Mommy go? Daddy, why is the sky blue? Which is actually a more complicated question than you I think. But before too long... The, the difficulty level tends to go up and increase and creep upward. So, Dad, why did my fish have to die? Or, Dad, where do babies come from? Talk to your mother. Or, or when can I have a smartphone? Or can I go to prom? Or what should I write on my financial aid application? Or where should I work? Or who should I marry? And the list just kind of keeps going on and on. We, we ask questions to gain understanding. We ask questions to express sorrow. We ask questions to demonstrate our care for someone or to voice wonder or amazement. Some of our questions are, I mean, honestly, rather trivial. I didn't say stupid. I just said trivial. <laughs> Some questions really matter. And yet, maybe you've never noticed this, some of the most important questions that we ask, we don't actually voice aloud. But we still ask them. Things like, who am I? What's my identity? Why is the world I live in so messed up? Why is my life such a mess? What will make it all right? Or where will I place my hope for the future? If you take all the questions you've ever asked, friend, all the questions you will ever ask, there is one question among them that is more important than any of the other questions. And that is a bold statement, and I am well aware of that. It's a question that's easy to ask, harder to answer, and yet whether you realize it or not, we are asking 
functionally and answering functionally this question every moment of every day. It's very simple. The question is, who is Jesus? So so when you're trapped in a dead-end job and you can't make ends meet, who is Jesus? Unconcerned, MIA, (laughs) distant, or faithful provider? When you feel stuck in a joyless marriage, when you've been on a hundred dates or no dates and still aren't married, who is Jesus? Is he wringing his hands? Is he freaking out? Or is he sustaining you morning by morning? Okay, when, when a friend disowns you, when a relative abuses you, when a family member disappoints you, who is Jesus? When you're changing yet another diaper or resolving yet another conflict or trying to figure out how to pay yet another medical bill, who is Jesus? When you're scrolling through Netflix or deciding what to wear, what to say, how to spend your weekend or how to spend your money, who is Jesus? If you're a non-Christian, the answer to that question might lie somewhere between irrelevant and inspiring example. Or maybe you've started reading God's word recently with with a Christian friend and you're beginning to kind of doubt your doubts and wonder, maybe this guy matters more than I thought he did. Maybe your answer to the question is biblically correct and you were proud of that (laughs) and you know that. You grew up in the church, you think you know all about Jesus. Or maybe there was a point in your life where you grasped your need for for deliverance from sin and death and you turned away from sin to trust Jesus to save you. You're confident you're a Christian. And if, if you're in that last category, I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. If you consider yourself a Christian, remember this. Who is Jesus is not a question that we settle once and for all and then move on from it. Do you realize that? Who is Jesus is not a toll booth on the Poet Parkway and you get through and you think, man, I'm glad I'm done paying 75 cents and off to the races with the rest of your life. It's not the way it works. It's not a test we pass to get a green stamp on our passport to heaven. It's a question we are answering every moment of every day, whether you realize it or not. You are constantly, functionally asking and answering, whether it's it's conscious or not, who is Jesus right now in this situation? And the Gospel of John, friends, was written to help you get the answer right. (laughs) That's the goal, to help you get the answer right. John 20, verse 30. He just comes right out and tells us this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
So from the first sign in John 2, where Jesus turns water into wine, to the seventh sign in John 11, where he raises Lazarus from the dead, the the miracles that Jesus performs are about what? They're all about confirming his identity. Answering that all-important question, who is Jesus? And over and over again, John says, he's the Christ. He's God incarnate. God, God come in human flesh to deliver and save us from sin and death. But listen, the proximate goal of the gospel, the gospel of John, is not the mere acquisition of knowledge about Jesus. It's not. John isn't a biography in the traditional sense where where even a brilliant author's stated goal is simply to give us a better sense of the facts and the course of a historical figure's life. It's not. The Gospel of John isn't a biography in that traditional sense. What, What does verse 31 say? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. When I read Roy Jenkins' biography of Winston Churchill, Roy Jenkins' stated goal is not that I would believe Churchill. But John's goal is not that we would just acquire knowledge about Jesus, but that we would believe he's the Christ, the son of God. Wholehearted reliance and faith and trust in Jesus in light of who he is, is the proximate goal of the gospel. And yet, friends, faith in him, wholehearted reliance on him, trust in him, that is never an end in and of itself. There's an ultimate goal behind that proximate goal. The ultimate goal of the gospel is what? That by believing Jesus, we may have life in his name. That's the goal. An abiding joy and peace and satisfaction that no suffering or sorrow in this world that's ever come to you in the past, that's with you in the present, or is coming your way in the future, can ever take away from you. As Jesus himself declares in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So if you want to know what the goal of the gospel of John is, here, here it is in a nutshell, okay? A deep and abiding faith in Jesus, producing an enduring and abundant life in Jesus, is the goal of the gospel of John. It's all about finding life in the Son of God through faith in the Son of God. And that's why I'm excited to spend what's probably going to be well over 18 months or so preaching through this book because I'm convinced that every moment of every day, there is no question more important, no question that matters more, and no question that John is better equipped to help us answer than who is Jesus. That's the goal. So let me give you a little bit of background on this gospel, okay? It's formally anonymous in the sense that at no point does the author come out and give his actual name, though the historical evidence clearly points to the Apostle John. If you're into that sort of thing, I could share a lot more. Come find me afterward. But it's clear that it's John the Apostle who wrote this. And most scholars date the Gospel of John to the latter part of the first century. So it's actually one of the latest 
Gospels to be written of the four. And it divides into four sections, just to get you oriented. So there's a prologue, which is chapter 1, 1 through 18 or so. Then there's the book of signs, which is the whole first half, all the way through chapter 12. That's establishing Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And then the second half is called the book of glory. Why is that? Because it culminates in his crucifixion which is where his glory most clearly shines forth, the hour that John refers to. And that book of glory includes two basic parts, Jesus' farewell discourse, chapters 13 to 17, and the passion narrative in verses, chapters 18 through 20. And then the epilogue that I just read from concludes with Jesus commissioning his followers and John confirming the purpose for his writing. But because this is the opening message and I have more liberties with an introduction, I want to go ahead and spill the beans and give you my favorite verse in the entire Gospel of John, perhaps, if I had to pick. And this is found at the very, very end. How many of you flip to the back of a book and find out how the story ends before you read the middle and get all worked up? Am I the only one? Okay, Shawnee, Rosier, and me. All right, okay, a few other people. Well, here you go. Welcome aboard, John 21, 25. Now there are are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself, oh man, could not contain the books that would be written. How could John say that? It's really simple, friends. He could say that with integrity because the glory of Jesus Christ is inexhaustible. Psalm 145 verse 3 is right, isn't it? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is what? Unsearchable. Unsearchable. And, And think about this. Jesus didn't stop doing things when he ascended into heaven, right? That's the other reason the world couldn't contain the books that could be written, right? He's still working and moving all over the world today. And so the story he's writing in your life right now, the work that he's doing in our church right now, that too is part of the books that could be written. And so John 21, 25 reminds us that no matter how long we've been following Jesus, because Jesus is always working and always moving, and the number of books that could be written about how he's working and moving are always growing, because of that, we never outgrow our need to understand who he is or what he's doing or why we should trust him. And this prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, in a wonderful way, like a table of contents, lays out many of the key themes of this entire gospel. But we're, we're going to confine our attention to the first five verses. Because I think in these five verses, we discover at least six of the most important answers to the question, who is Jesus? Okay? So, turn your attention to John 1, verse 1. What do we read? In the beginning was the Word.
This is why I said it feels like lassoing a volcano to preach this text. It's not until verse 14 that John identifies explicitly the word as Jesus. It is Jesus. But up to this, that point, verse 14, he simply refers to Jesus as the word or the logos. And you need to know, despite all the writing out there to the contrary, John isn't lifting that concept from Greek philosophy, though it is a Greek word, logos, okay? He is borrowing, he's drawing from the Jewish Old Testament, where the word of the Lord, the word of God is connected, listen very carefully, to God's self-expression in creation and revelation and salvation. That's what he's doing. So by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Right? Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, God disclosed himself to his people. By the word of the Lord, God accomplished salvation for his people through judgment on their enemies. You you read the entire Old Testament, and what do you find over and over and over again? That the word of the Lord is so intimately associated with God's person and God's work that to reject the word of the Lord is to what? To disdain God himself. And that means, friend, we don't intuit God's existence or his nature or his will for our lives through some sort of sixth sense. You know, people will talk about, well, you know, I just think there are spiritual vibes out there. Well, how in God's name do you know that's not just last night's Chinese making you imagine something. Well, the reason we know is that the God of the universe is not a God who hides or waits to be discovered by men. Okay? It is, listen, it is of God's very nature to reveal himself. It's the significance of he's the word. What what a gift that is. The weight of initiation, okay? The the, the weight of determination, the the burden of discovering and ascertaining the truth about God doesn't rest on you. We don't survey assorted religious teachings from various corners of the world and kind of piece together our personal take on God. We don't construct or invent God. God makes himself known to us. You do not have the liberty, friend. You may try, but you ultimately do not have the liberty of creating God. You don't get to pick God. You don't get to invent God. You don't get to research what other people have thought about God and come up with your own version of God. God reveals himself. You're not a revelation creator, friend. You're a revelation receiver. Why? Because you're a creature. You're not the creator. And John calls Jesus the word. Hear this. Because Jesus Christ is the climactic and definitive revelation of the person and glory of God. Period. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
You want to translate that more literally? Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke in a prophet kind of way. But in these last days, he has spoken what? In a son kind of way. God isn't speaking through Google. He's speaking through Jesus. And so if you want to know God, you don't jump on a search engine. You deal with the word of God. You look to Jesus. And when you do, what are you going to discover? Who is Jesus? Well, let's listen to the six answers. Here we go. In the beginning was the word. Translation. Answer one. The word is eternal. The word is eternal. That's a deliberate echo on John's part of the very first verse of the Bible, by the way. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So think about this, okay? Before the universe was created, before the stars were born, but before the earth existed and history began, Jesus existed. He, he transcends the created order because he pre-exists the created order. And when you look back to the absolute origin of the universe, friend, you will find neither primordial matter nor a big bang. You will find the eternally self-existent son of the living God. John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. So what are the very first words of the gospel of John accomplish? In no uncertain terms, they banish, for those who have ears to hear, our little, tiny, small, bobblehead-sized notions of Jesus. They just kick him to the curb. <laughs> because we're what? We're finite. And mortal, okay? If this was about us, how would it start? In the beginning, you were not. You were not because you had a beginning, okay? But Jesus was because he's eternally begotten. And the degree to which we struggle to admit that that's true or receive that that's true is the degree to which we have arrogantly enthroned our experience in this physical world as the ultimate arbiter of what could be true. Everything in our world is governed by time, right? You're governed by time. You've never not been governed by time. You didn't decide to be governed by time. Everything around you, including you, has a beginning just like you. But Jesus doesn't. He isn't bound by time because he created time. <laughs> John, Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. You could read that verse over and over and over again. And you know what? We'll never have the smallest notion of all that entails. And you know what I say? I say that's exceedingly good. 
Because the Lord knows we need our estimation of ourselves to what? To decrease. And our sight and our awe and our amazement at the glory of God to increase. Not because by kind of reciting it over and over again or meditating on it longer, we're making ourselves small or making God great. But because as we let him and his word speak to us and remind us that he's eternal, it's designed to humble you. That's the application. If you ever find yourself in the Gospel of John saying, okay, well, I get all that, but, but how's this pragmatically helpful, pastor? Give me some seven to-dos. You know what I'm going to say to you a lot of the time? Fall down and worship the living God. Fall down. Worship the living God. Repent of your pride. Repent of your self-centeredness. Repent of thinking that you are the big man in your big world and that the world would be a lot better if everybody else would just realize how big and great you are. Be humbled. That's good for creatures. It's good to feel small. The word is eternal. Second, the word is one with God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now listen to me very carefully here, okay? That word with, in verse 1, is not a description of mere proximity or presence. Okay, it refers to an intimate personal relationship or close communion. It's, it's John's way of telling us that the word is both personally distinct from God and inseparably united to God. Think about that. Okay, it's a picture of what theologians call the Trinity. God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and the word we translate God in verse 1, theos, is the primary Greek word John uses throughout the gospel to refer to God the Father. So verse 1 tells us that the word, or Jesus, has always been with God, in what sense? In the sense that he has always existed in the closest possible relationship with God the Father. It means that from eternity past, the person of the Father has always enjoyed the self-expression of his glory in the person of God the Son. And so, the origin of the universe, think about this, unlike so much mythology and worldviews at the time is not a sea of chaos or the conflict between rival gods at the root of all things is what? The eternal unbroken fellowship of the Godhead. It's why Jesus could pray in John 17, 5, and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the word is eternal The word is with God. Third, the word is God. Look back at verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Slow down. (laughs) What does that mean? That means that the word is both distinct from God and identical to God. How's that work? Well, well, here's where John decisively shatters any sort of Greek philosophical notion of the logos as some kind of impersonal force or the personification of wisdom. John doesn't say, listen, that the word is divine 
or that the word reflects some of the attributes of God or, or has a likeness to God. He says the word is God in a qualitative sense. The nature or essence of the word is what? The nature or essence of God. And John's remarkably careful with his grammar here. He doesn't say all that God is, the word is. As if the essence of God was encapsulated or limited to the word. As Edward Clink rightly observes, the word is fully God, but God is not fully the word. Why not? Because God is what? Father, Son, and Spirit. That the nature of God isn't limited to the second person of the Trinity. And yet, the Word is fully God because he contains all the attributes and qualities that God contains. Why is all that relevant? (laughs) Why is that more than just what theologians have debated and been killed for in the history of the church. Well, here's many ways, I think, why John's very clear on this from the outside of his gospel. He wants you to know that whenever you hear him talking about Jesus, he is talking about God. He's he's consciously and explicitly including Jesus in the monotheistic worldview of the Jews. Why is that important to us? Very simple. Because among other reasons, it should remind you, friend, that you you can't just lump whatever Jesus says or does on top of the heap of, of inspirational teachings from various major religious figures. He's in a category by himself. Because when Jesus speaks, God is speaking. When Jesus acts, God is acting. When Jesus weeps, God is weeping. The the word, in other words, doesn't just show us things about God or like some sort of mere display or reflect the character of God. The word is God. Feel the weight of that. I love how Michael Reeves says, God cannot be wordless for the word is God. Here then is a God who could never be anything but communicative, expansive, outgoing. Since God cannot be without this word, he simply could not ever be reclusive. For eternity, this word sounds out, telling us of an uncontainable God of exuberance and abundance, an overflowing God of surplus, a glorious God of grace. Jesus doesn't merely unveil some truth for us, some other principle or system of thought, like light going out from its source. This word actually brings God to us. That's incredible. And so we need to pay attention to Jesus accordingly. And I especially want to entreat those of you who, if you're honest, you have functionally just tossed him on the heap of what various historical religious figures have said. Don't do that. Why not? Because he claims to be God. He's not pointing out where God is or the way to God or some sort of life out there with God that you can find if you buy his book and follow his steps. He is God. In the Gospel of John, God himself confronts you with his manifold excellencies in the person of Christ. Answer four. 
The word is the agent of creation. Look at verse three. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. What is that say? Well, positively and negatively, it tells us at least two things. Okay, first, it tells us the universe is neither eternal nor accidental. Why not? Because the word made it. The word created it. And second, it tells us Jesus is most definitely not a created being. Why not? Because he's the creator at everything that has been made. Everything that has been created has been created by him. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So think of it this way. If God the Father is the source of creation, God the Son is the agent of creation. That's John's point. Why is that important to remember as we jump into this gospel? Well, because sometimes I think we are sorely tempted to believe that Jesus doesn't get the reality of life in this world. He seems distant. He seems removed. You know, like like we're living in this physical world and I mean, it sure seems kind of real for the pastor waving his arms on stage, but as far as I'm concerned, Jesus exists in some sort of neverland out there somewhere. And then we conclude that maybe he has some helpful things to say, but because he's so checked out and removed, ultimately I'm going to have to decide what works for me in my world. Friend, Jesus understands and gets your world my world, this world, infinitely better than you do because you didn't make this world. Jesus did. (laughs) Okay? Nothing in your world, no aspect of your embodied existence falls outside the boundaries of his perfect wisdom because he created the world. He knows what is good because he created what is good, right? He knows how things are supposed to be because he created them the way they're supposed to be. And he's not combating evil alongside of us like some sort of Middle Earth ally confined to a universe that dwarfs him no less than the rest of us. Okay, the one who walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem was at the exact same time upholding the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1 verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so that means as you live in this world, everything that you see, every person you encounter, every place you will go, it's all Because he's the author of creation. Let me unleash Michael Reeves on you again. Sadly, so many Christians 
have a background virus in their understanding of the gospel here. (laughs) It's not easy to spot, but it eats away at their confidence in Christ. It's this, the sneaking suspicion that while Jesus is a savior, he's not really the creator of all. So they sing of his love on a Sunday, and there it is true. But walking home through the streets, past the people and the places where real life goes on, they don't feel it as Christ's world. As if the universe is a neutral place. As if Christianity is just something we've smeared on top of real life. Jesus is reduced to being little more than a comforting nibble of spiritual chocolate. An imaginary friend who saves souls, but not much else. The Bible knows of no such piffling and laughable Christlet. <laughs> Amen! Knows nothing of that. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. This is, as the old hymn says it, God's world. He's the author of creation. He's eternal. He's one with God. He is God. He's the agent of creation. Number five, the word is the source of life. Look back at verse four. In him was life. Do a lot of you like to eat at Chick-fil-A? I got to see some shaking heads. You're you're just like, I refuse to go with the flow, people. I get it. Well, tomorrow morning, I'm going to take my oldest son, Ethan, to Chick-fil-A. Because that is what we do on the first Monday of every month for breakfast. We go to Chick-fil-A because in that kitchen of that restaurant are mouth-watering bites. This is going to make me want to wish they were open on Sundays, (laughs) mouth-watering bites of lightly breaded nuggets with an assortment of tantalizing sauces. Mm. But think about it while your stomachs are grumbling, okay? The chicken didn't start there, did it? Right? It started on a farm and was shipped to a meat processing plant. And then went to a food distributor. And we don't show kids those parts because it would be traumatic. Who eventually delivered the uncooked pieces of chicken breast to our local Chick-fil-A. So the chicken is in the restaurant. But it didn't originate in the restaurant. Listen. Not so with the life that is in Christ. Not so. In him was life. Not because he found life or acquired life from somewhere else or had it shipped to him, but because life has always resided in him. He's self-existent. No one gave Jesus life. He's eternally possessed life, not just in an existential or physical sense, but also in an emotional and affective sense. Jesus has, from eternity past, been infinitely joyful infinitely content, infinitely at peace. He's never once been unsatisfied. He's the giver of life because he's the source and fountain of life. He gives us life in a physical sense as our creator, and he gives us life in a spiritual sense as our redeemer. 
And the fact that in him life is found tells us just how different Jesus is. Please hear this. From all the other spiritual gurus out there who claim to have discovered the path to health and prosperity. Okay, I can't wait for baseball season to start. And so I think this is a helpful picture. Jesus doesn't stand in the marketplace of religious figures like the beer guy at a flying squirrels game calling out, life here, life here, get your life here. No, he gives life by giving himself. Why? John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am. I'm not selling it. I'm not a middleman. It's in me. He gives us himself. And sadly, many professing Christians talk about and treat Jesus like he is a means to getting life somewhere else, right? So follow Jesus and he'll make all your material dreams come true. Your kids will start behaving, your bills will get paid, your health will improve, your self-esteem will grow because that's what God worships, your self-esteem. Your spouse will move back in. You name it, Jesus can deliver. It's like, don't call Grubhub, call Jesus. (laughs) We do that. And what's the great lie behind that, though? There's a great lie behind that. It's the thought that life is something outside of Jesus, that he merely delivers to us. That's impossible. It's not just a lie. It's impossible. It could never be true. Why not? Because life is found in him. He is your life, friend. In him is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Don't don't reduce Jesus to a vending machine. Come to him. Trust in him. Receive him. He is your life. We're going to come back to that over and over again in this gospel. Number six. The word is the light of men. Look back at verse four told you this was like a table of contents. And him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What, what, what did God say at the beginning of creation? Genesis 1. Let there be light. Right? And there was light. Do you realize? You ever thought about this? That was Jesus speaking. Oh, I thought that was like an amorphous God blob. No, no. Jesus created the sun. Jesus created the stars. He created the moon, but he doesn't just create light. He is the light. The life in him is and was the light of men. Light emanated from him in creation and life continues to emanate from him in redemption. So how does Jesus give light to men in redemption? How does he do that? All kinds of ways. He teaches us to see the depth of our sin and rebellion against the Lord. That we all deserve God's judgment. That that no one is good enough to earn God's love and acceptance. He tells us that he came to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He lived our life. He died our death. And even now, he he holds forth his nail-scarred hands to you, friend, inviting you, pleading with you to turn from your sins and follow him. And for all who have made that choice... 
what does Jesus continue to do? He continues to shine forth in splendor through the pages of his word. Okay, drawing our, our wandering hearts away from the vanities of this world to trust and obey him more and more. Je- Jesus is the light of men because he delights to enlighten your heart. To see the truth that there is no one more beautiful or satisfying or delightful than the Son of God. He's all that you need. And it's only when you see Jesus for who he is, please hear this, that you can actually see anything else in the world for what it is. You'll never see or feel or think about anything else rightly until you see it in light of Jesus. He's he's the light of men. And he shines his light. He he manifests his triumphant power and glory in the darkness of sin and wickedness. Look at verse 5. And to this day, the darkness has not overcome it. We can't preach John 1 without referring to the Lord of the Rings. And in Tolkien's novel, The Return of the King, Frodo and Sam are in the evil land of Mordor. And as the light begins to fall, they collapse under a curtain of brambles, weary and exhausted. And later on, Sam kind of crawls out of their hiding place and he looks up. And Tolkien writes, There, peeping among the cloud rock, above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. And as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Why will that make you cry? (laughs) It's not because I read that and think, if only that were true. It's because on the day that Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb on his own power, we what? We knew that that was going to be true. That the darkness of human sin and evil and suffering would not be a match for the power of God. Death couldn't hold him. The weight of our sin couldn't overcome him. He rose. He dawned as the firstborn of a new creation. And ever since that day, what has the Spirit of God been doing? He's been in the business of opening spiritual blind eyes to see the transcendent beauty and power of the Son of God seated in heaven, okay, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. And no matter how much the church has been persecuted or oppressed, you know what happens to the church, his body? It continues to grow. <laughs> Why? Because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So take heart in this, friends, as we wade into this book. There is no darkness within you. There is no darkness around you that is a match for the redeeming and transforming and conquering power of Jesus Christ. You won't find it within you or around you. 
Because of Jesus, the light of our salvation has already dawned. Malachi 4 verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise. With healing in its wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You want an introduction to Jesus? Just read the first five verses. He's eternal. He's one with God. He is God. He's the agent of creation. He's the source of life. And he's the light of men. The the gospel of John is going to come back to those themes over and over and over again. Why? Why? So that we would believe Jesus for who he really is. And by believing, we would have life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all we can say as we just step our toe into these waters is that you are amazing. You're amazing. And God, I ask that your stated purpose for the Gospel of John would be accomplished in our hearts as a people over the next year to two. I ask, Lord, that you would confront our forgetful, arrogant, all that is is what I can see and feel minds with sign after sign of your identity as God the Son incarnate, the Christ. And I pray as you do that again and again, you would cause faith in you and trust in you and and wholehearted, joyful reliance on you to overflow in our hearts. And that as that happens, Lord, we would find more and more every hour of every day, you weren't kidding. You weren't messing around when you said, I have come that you might have life. Life abundant. Would you give us life in Jesus? Not in knowing about Jesus, but in leaning on Jesus and loving Jesus. Standing in awe of Jesus. Lord, we're grateful that we can never think thoughts that are too high about you. And so we pray, week after week, you would dynamite little piffling Christlets. Help us, we pray, in your name. Amen.